And our passage today is very unsurprisingly, for anyone who's been here recently, from Acts. And I'm going to start at chapter 6, verse 8, and we're hearing the story of Stephen. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, Sue. If you've got your news sheets there, there's an outline as well as the passage that you can follow along with. Well, it's lovely to be back after being away for a couple of weeks. I had, with Brian and Toby, five days on Phillip Island, which was really beautiful and somewhat bracing, as you can see from that photo. Brian then had to go back to work, and Toby and I had a few days in Byron Bay, which was also beautiful, but more balmy. Shorts and T-shirts were worn even by me. While we were in Byron Bay, we bumped into a friend of ours. He was there with his kids and with his mum crossing the road I was crossing. We met on the island in the middle, so it was a brief chat that we had. And I hadn't met Andy's mum before, so I introduced myself and we chatted for a few minutes. And as we chatted, she said, oh, you're married to Brian Rosner. This was her way of putting me in a story, understanding who I was. She'd known Brian through his work at Ridley College. This cuts both ways for us. Often in the churches where I work, Brian is known as my husband. But we do this kind of thing all the time, don't we? As we meet new people, as we get to know each other, we share parts of our story. We share 
different strands of our stories. We each have many strands to our stories and who we are. And we share those different parts of our stories because they say something about who we are. Our stories build bridges with each other, don't they? Being married to Brian is part of my story. Being a stepmum and a mum is part of my story. Having immigrated from South Africa with my family when I was five to Australia is part of my story. Working as a lawyer and then as a minister is part of my story. Today, we're going to reflect on Stephen's story, the story he shares in answer to these charges that were made against him. Stephen is one of the Christians in Jerusalem in the 30s, in the first century. There's a group of Jews who accuse him of blasphemy, and this dispute ends up before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 71 Jewish leaders. It was the high priest, some of the retired high priests, some other Jewish leaders, and legal experts. It had civil and criminal jurisdiction over the Jewish people, and it also dealt with religious matters. It was the Sanhedrin who sentenced Jesus to death on false charges of blasphemy. We heard the charges against Stephen in our reading. We heard the high priest ask him, are these charges true? And we heard just the first few sentences of Stephen's reply, which is very long. It's 52 verses. It runs for a couple of pages in our Bible. So today, I just want to dip into the big picture of Acts 6 and 7 and draw out some themes. We'll look at parts of Stephen's speech as we do that, but I really encourage you to go home and read the whole thing if you haven't already. It's worth spending time on. So first, let's find out a little bit more about the protagonists in this argument, Stephen and the Jews who opposed him. Stephen's opponents are described as members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. On this map, you can see that these are Jews who've come to Jerusalem from modern day Turkey and Egypt and Libya. We heard in verse 9 that they began to argue with Stephen. And then in verse 11, we see they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous, blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen, they brought him before the Sanhedrin, and they produced false witnesses. If this was a movie, the baddie music would be playing in the background right now. The portrait of Stephen is very different. We met him last week in the earlier part of Acts 6. He was one of the seven men chosen to look after the daily distribution of food in the fledgling Christian community. He's described there as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And that picture is filled out in what we've just heard. In verse 8, he is a man full of God's power and grace. He performed great wonders and signs among the people. In verse 10, he has wisdom given by the Holy Spirit as he speaks. And in verse 15, Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. It's a remarkable portrait. Even before we hear his speech, Stephen is portrayed as a man doing the works of God and speaking the words of God. There are echoes of Moses in this description. There are also echoes, echoes of Jesus who prayed forgiveness for his enemies as he hung on the cross. 
I'm jumping to the end of the story here, but this dispute ends with the outraged members of the Sanhedrin stoning Stephen to death. And in verse 60, we see that Stephen fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep. It's a sober conclusion. But let's rewind to see what's at the heart of this dispute. What is the puzzle that they're arguing over? We heard the general accusation in verse 11. We've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. It's sharpened by the false witnesses in verse 13. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. The dispute is about the temple. That's where the Sanhedrin is meeting. They call it this holy place. And it's about the law of Moses. So I wonder, is it really worth working our way through this speech? It's a dispute that looks ancient and Jewish. But in reality, I'd argue that the questions of the temple and the law of Moses raise contemporary and universal issues for us. Stephen refers to both the temple and the law in his speech as he replies. So I want to look there to see what he says to help us see how these questions might be relevant for us. In verses 46 and 47 of his speech, Stephen refers to King David and King Solomon. They were the kings of Israel around 1000 to 900 BC. And this is what he says. David enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. This dwelling place, this house that Solomon built was the temple. It's described in 1 Kings 6 and 7, and it was amazing. But the temple was much more than a spectacularly grand building. The temple was where God dwelt with his people, as Stephen says, where God lived with his people. He wasn't there physically, but the temple was the place that signified God's presence in Israel. And a number of times in the Old Testament, we read that the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That was the sign that God was there with his people. The temple was about God being with his people, Israel. I think the question that the temple answers is this one. Is God real? And if so, where is he? I think that's a still a pretty big question today. Maybe it's a question you're grappling with now. Maybe it's a question you've reflected on in the past. Is God real? And if so, where is he? There's a Christian website that I like to have a look at every now and then uh, called Eternity News with a column I like to read, which is called Faith Stories. Recently, I read a story about a guy called Chris. He was a police officer in the 80s and early 90s in Tasmania. He loved his work, but in 1992, he had a really traumatic experience. He'd arrested a guy for a number of crimes, and this man somehow got hold of Chris's home phone number, and he rang through, Chris's wife picked up, and the guy said that he was going to come around and shoot Chris. Uh, 
Obviously, this was a really traumatic experience. It led to Chris having a breakdown. He had two years of sick leave and then had to leave the police force. And he was really devastated by that. At this time, Chris and his wife were living on a farm. Chris's wife was a Christian. He was not. Chris says this, on the 1st of April 1994, I went out the back door into the paddock and I just yelled at God. I said, God, are you real? He eventually became a Christian. This is a question that many of us ask, even if we don't ask it as dramatically as Chris did. Is God real? And if so, where is he? As Stephen talks about the temple, he helps us with that question. It's not just the temple theme that's relevant for us today. Listen to what Stephen says about the law. He reflects in verse 38 that Moses was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living words to pass on to us. That was the law. If we look back to this incident in Exodus, we see that God gave Moses the law, which was a big thing, but also the Ten Commandments, which were kind of a a summary of the law. The first four commandments were about how the Israelites were to worship God. The second six commandments were about how they were to live together, how they were to treat each other. The law for the Israelites was about who they were to worship, and how they were to live. Again, those questions are still relevant for us today, even if they're not often explicitly asked. Who do we worship and how do we live? I remember an episode of Q&A that I watched around Easter this year. This is the panellists who were, here, who were on the, the show that night. It was a range of politicians and people of different faith backgrounds. One of the audience questions was this one. According to the 2021 Australian Census, those declaring that they have no religion, the nuns increased to almost 40%, second to only Christianity. David Foster Wallace said, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Here's the question. Do you think these nuns really ditched religion or have they just shifted to worshipping things that are much worse? And what does this mean for the soul of our nation? It was an interesting question that sparked a lot of debate. Andrew Neil was one of the panellists that night. He's a British journalist and broadcaster. His answer was, of course, people all worship. Reality television, worshipping themselves, validating things they believe in. Other people were really offended by that response and argued vehemently that people can worship nothing. But perhaps Neil is right. A friend of ours was recently in Norway and went to the Oslo National Museum and sent us a photo of this plaque there. I'm going to read it for you because you can't really see it there. In the Middle Ages, people used a large proportion of their resources for religious purposes, from the building of churches to the care of the poor. The goal was to be with God for all eternity. What do we place our trust in today? for the future? Great question. Here's the answer. The government pension fund global. The Norwegian Petroleum Fund is the world's largest investment fund. 
This is what they put their trust in for the future, the world's largest investment fund. We worship that in which we put our trust. Perhaps worship really is at the heart of who we all are, even if we deny it. It's always challenging to reflect on what you and I are tempted to worship. There are so many good things that we're tempted to make ultimate. Family, friends, success, financial security, a happy life. I wonder if any of those tempt you to put their trust, to put your trust in them. Interestingly, I think how we live is really closely related to who we worship or what we worship. Take the idea of human rights. That's an idea that's really at the heart of our modern Western culture and that's defended by almost everybody. It's defended even as our culture slowly distances itself from Christian faith. But I wonder if that's a coherent response. Uh, author Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book, The Secular Creed, thinks about this. She reminds us of the American Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, all people are created equal. But there's an atheist historian, Yuval Noah Harari, who writes this in response. The Americans got the idea of equality from Christianity which argues that every person has a divinely created soul and that all souls are equal before God. However, if we don't believe in the Christian myths, as she calls them, about God, creation and souls, what does it mean that all people are equal? Homo sapiens has no natural rights, just as spiders, hyenas and chimpanzees have no natural rights. We could debate this point, but according to Harari, this Western core value of human rights has no coherent basis without the worship of God to underpin it. It's come from Christians and it remains in our culture, even though there's this current pushback against God. There's no guarantee we'll hold on to our value of human rights, equal human rights for all, as people drift away from God. How we live is inextricably connected with who or what we worship. Who do we worship and how do we live are questions that Stephen helps us with as he responds to the charges against him about the law. So let's have a really brief look now at Stephen's speech. It's a speech in which he tells a story. He tells the story of Israel. Not the whole story, but he really gives a comprehensive overview. I want to explore the pattern of his speech before we dig into a few of some of uh, a few of the details about the temple and the law. So looking at chapter 7 and verse 2, Stephen says, "Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you." Stephen starts with God the God of glory. Right through Stephen's speech, God is the one who directs the action. He sends people. He speaks. He is with different people. He makes Israel into a nation. He brings them out of slavery into a land that he's prepared for them. He makes promises to them and he fulfills his promises. 
This is Israel's story. It's Stephen's story, but much more than all of that, this is God's story. Secondly, Stephen addresses the Jews who are accusing him together with the Sanhedrin and he calls them brothers and fathers. Then 11 times in his speech, he refers to our ancestors or our forefathers. This story is a shared story. It's a story that Stephen shares with those who are accusing him, with those who are weighing up his future. As he tells this story, he really leans into their shared identity. And thirdly, Stephen doesn't just lean into their shared identity, but into their shared history. His speech really is epic in its scope. He touches on Abraham and God's promises to him, including the covenant of circumcision. He traces the story through Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. He narrates the 400 years that his ancestors spent in Egypt, the time that they flourished there, as well as the time that they were in slavery there. He reminds them of Moses' unusual preparation to be the leader that God had chosen to lead them out of Egypt. He remembers the wilderness. He remembers the people's disobedience to God in the golden calf. And he finishes with King David and King Solomon and the house, the temple that Solomon built for God. Stephen covers about a thousand years of Israel's history in this speech. He gives the Jews and the Sanhedrin lots that they can resonate with, lots that they can agree with. One writer compares Stephen's speech to the run-up of a fast bowler in test cricket. I know if you like watching cricket, I love watching test cricket. And one of the beautiful things is the way fast bowlers work really hard to get their run-up right. They pace it out, they put down a mark, they have a practice bowl. Sometimes when they're in the middle of an over, they'll do the whole run up and if it's not feeling right, they'll pull out without bowling the ball. If their bowling isn't going well, sometimes they will mark out their run up all over again. One of the keys to a good delivery for a fast bowler is getting the run up right. In his speech, Stephen works really hard on his run up. He tells their shared story deliberately to help them arrive at the present moment at exactly the right speed, at exactly the right angle, at the right speed and the right angle to see the truth of who Jesus is, to see what the temple and the law have to do with him. So how effective is this ball that Stephen bowls? Remember, firstly, the temple points us to the question, is God real, and if so, where is he? In Stephen's speech, we've already seen that God is the one directing the action. God is real, Stephen says. And through each chapter of history, Stephen highlights God's presence with his people. In verse 2, we heard, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham God was with Joseph in verse 9 when his jealous brothers sold him into slavery. God was with Moses, speaking to him from the flames of the burning bush in verse 33 of chapter 7. God was with Joshua, driving out the nations who were in the promised land in verse 45. And God was with David, who enjoyed God's favour. He was with Solomon, who was the one who finally built the temple. There's the beginning of the twist in Stephen's story. Yes, the temple was the house for God, 
but God had been with his people before the temple was built. God was even with his people before the temple's precursor, the tabernacle. What about the law? What does Stephen say about the law which points to our second question? Who do we worship and how do we live? We don't hear quite as much in this speech about the law. But Stephen does remind us in his speech that God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. This was before the law, but this covenant made clear to Abraham who he was to worship and how he was to live. A little bit here from Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Who to worship? I am God Almighty. How to live? Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. But there's another twist. Stephen does reflect on God giving the law to Moses, as we've already heard in his speech. But immediately after that, he says, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected God. If there was any problem with the law, it was the Israelites' response to it, their disobedience of it. So Stephen affirms God's presence in Israel's history even before the temple. He affirms the giving of the law. As he tells this story, their story, these little twists point forward to where Stephen's ball lands. Let's read from verse 48 of chapter 7. However, the Most High does not live in houses built by human hands, says Stephen. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Stephen quotes here from Isaiah 66. He's reminding the Sanhedrin that God is so much bigger than a building. How ridiculous to think that the God who made everything could be contained in a house, in a temple. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. Note, now he talks about your ancestors, not our ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the Lord, law that was given through angels, but who have not obeyed it. Again, Stephen accuses the Sanhedrin of disobeying God and the law, of killing Jesus, the righteous one. This is a ripper of a ball, and it is not happily received. Verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen's ball lands with Jesus. Why does it? The reason was hinted at in chapter 6, verse 14. We have heard Stephen say, this is their accusation, we have heard Stephen say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and will change the customs Moses handed down to us. So what did Jesus really say? 
Jesus said in John 2, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Is God real? And if so, where is he? God is real, says Stephen, and he is with us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, as we hear in Matthew 1. His body is the temple. And in his death, Jesus, the righteous one, as Stephen calls him, is the perfect sacrifice who deals with our disobedience to God once and for all. He was vindicated as innocent when God raised him on the third day. And after his death, he sends his Holy Spirit to those who trust in him so that God is still with us as we trust in Jesus. What else did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. And he also said this in Matthew 22. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Who do we worship and how do we live? In everything that Jesus said and did, he fulfilled the law, especially in his death and resurrection. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. Stephen saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. This is who we worship, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we live with him by loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and by loving those around us. This is the big picture of Stephen's speech. There's way more that we could look at. And I'd love you to go home and read it. Read it and reflect on where he lands, where he lands with Jesus. Reflect on why he lands with Jesus and on where you stand with Jesus. If you have questions about who Jesus is and what he's done for us, please talk to someone here today. Come and talk to me or Karen or John or one of the other staff. There's lots to absorb in this amazing story. I shared some of the strands of my story earlier. The most important strand for me is that I am a follower of Jesus. And that means like Stephen, I have a story to share, a story that is mine, but also a story that I hold in common with Christians all around the world today and Christians down the ages. If you're someone who worships and lives with Jesus, I wonder what your story is and how you and I might share our stories with other people. Remember the shape of of Stephen's story. He started with God. That's a great place for us to start when we have opportunities to share with others. Are you able to share something of what God has done for us in Jesus? with those you know and love? Are you able to share something of what God has done in your life with those you know and love? We also noticed that Stephen leaned into his shared identity and history with the Sanhedrin and the Jews. He established common ground 
in order to share who Jesus is and how he calls us to live. I wonder how each of us can find common ground with our family, with our friends, with our work colleagues that might help us to share about Jesus. Sometimes that's really challenging. Recently, I was watching my son play school footy and I met another parent who I hadn't met before and he said to me, what do you do? I said, it's a bit weird. I told him that I'm a minister in an Anglican church and he agreed that was a bit weird and uh, said, you don't hear that much. Sometimes it's hard to establish common ground. It can feel daunting to share our story and to talk about Jesus, can't it? The Carlton team has been talking recently about how we can better equip all of us to be sharing our stories of Jesus' work in our lives. We have some questions about evangelism as part of our strategic plan discussion paper. We would love to hear from you about what might help you. We'd love to hear from you about ideas that you have. So please come and talk to John or me or one of the other staff or join one of the discussion opportunities about the strategic plan. Stephen's story really is amazing. It helps us answer big questions, important questions. Is God real? And if so, where is he? Who do we worship? And how do we live? Stephen helps us see that the answer to those questions is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And as you put your trust in Jesus, you become part of his story. My hope and prayer is that Jesus is your story and that he will equip you to live his story and to share it with others.